Good evening. I'm going to give you take two. Good evening. Much better. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, we've been going through this book, and uh, we've been learning a lot. And Peter, of course, wrote this book with certain purpose in mind. And uh, living in the knowledge of the truth, uh, which is our theme, really, really encourage us encourages us to take the truth that we live, and not just that we live, but that we learn, and live it out. And, and that can be a challenging thing. Uh, oftentimes we learn things that we don't necessarily put them into practice. And so Peter, in our study here, has been teaching us about living in the knowledge of the truth. We've, we've talked about uh, the truth about Christian growth, and we've gotten into this uh, teaching on the truth about false teachers. We also studied the truth about God's Word. Uh, but now we're in this study, which two weeks ago we were looking at. I want to sort of catch us up before we get into our study. When Peter began in chapter 2 and verse 1 to talk about the truth uh, regarding false teachers, he made it clear that false teachers are a danger to the church. He made that abundantly clear. But they're also destined for destruction. They're going to be judge because they are damaging people's lives. They're seeking to do harm to the work of God. And so what Peter did was he gave a few examples of godly judgment uh, against the ungodly in the past. So God judged those in the past like the false teachers, and he gives three examples. He talks about the fallen angels, which again we looked at two weeks ago, God's judgment against the fallen angels, also God's judgment against the ancient world, and finally God's judgment against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we got to the end of our study, and this sort of is part two, we pick it up in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, but in verse 9, Peter had encouraged the people that he was writing to, who were being persecuted for their faith, uh, he was encouraging them that God would judge the ungodly in the future. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I would love to see everyone repent, but if they're not going to repent, knowing that God is going to judge sin, knowing that God is going to judge the ungodly, is actually an encouraging thought. You'd hate to think that all of the people who do such harm, false teachers, those who do wickedness, they do such harm to others, would just get away with it and, you know, enter into an eternity without being held accountable. But, of course, we know that we all would be held accountable for our sins, if not for the grace of God. Amen? And so that's where we pick it up uh, this evening. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 22, finish out this section, again, on the subject of false teachers, the truth about false teachers. Let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, as always, we come to you. We thank you for a time of worship and fellowship, and now we look to you to be encouraged from your word. We, we truly desire to hear your voice. Lord, we, we are encouraged to know that you will deal with false teachers, with those who are wicked. You will deal with those that harm others, that bring judgment on themselves. But Lord, as we talk about false teachers, help us to recognize what's false by comparing it to what's true. Your wonderful example, the example of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, lived a life of love, gave his life for us, 
and many wonderful godly men and women throughout the centuries who lived their lives being Christ-like in the way that they treated others. May we study the truth. May we look at what's, what's truly honoring to you so that when we see what's false, we would recognize it immediately and not allow ourselves to be endangered by those who would take advantage of us within the church, even without the church, simply because we're not knowledgeable about the truth. And so, Lord God, may we be equipped and armed with your truth this evening for studying your word, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, false teachers are described by Peter now. He's going to let us know what to look for, what to expect in terms of identifying false teachers in the church. Now, I'll be honest, I don't enjoy talking about false teachers. It actually gets me angry, can I be honest? The more I talk about false teaching and false teachers, the angrier I get that there are actually people out there that would harm individuals like you, like me, who come into a church setting desiring to grow closer to the Lord, desiring to understand God's word, but in the end being taken advantage of by people who are wicked. And the idea that they're going to be judged, I think, is an encouraging thought because honestly, It gets me angry to think that someone would get up in the morning and their motivation would be to take advantage of someone else or harm them under the guise of trying to help them. Uh, Listen, I don't enjoy the purchasing process when the purchasing process requires me trusting someone else's knowledge. Would you agree with that statement? You know, you, you go to buy a car, but you don't know a lot about cars. So when you walk into the car dealership, You're relying on someone else's knowledge and expertise. What ends up happening oftentimes, unfortunately, is you get taken advantage of. There are certain things, I don't know why, like cars I kind of understand, uh, mattresses. Like you go to buy a mattress and it's like there's this unwritten rule that that the people who are selling you the mattress are going to try to take advantage of you. I don't know why that is. But that's one of the things. But cars, mattresses, there are other things that if you go to purchase them, it's like you walk in just thinking, okay, how am I going to prevent this person from manipulating me, taking advantage of me? One of the things, if you're a homeowner, one of the things, I don't know why, again, it's true, but chimney cleaners are notorious for ripping people off. You would think such a simple thing. It's like, you know, you hire a landscaper, ah, pr- pretty easy, no problem. You hire someone to clean your pool, generally no problem. But you hire someone to clean your chimney, and they take you for your arm and your leg. Certain industries have been infiltrated with people who just love to con you, take advantage of you, rip you off. Brothers and sisters, the church should not be among them. And yet we know all too well that religion as a whole, Christianity in particular, and unfortunately evangelical Christianity, has been infiltrated by a bunch of, excuse me for saying this, mattress salesmen. Now, I'm I'm sure that there's probably someone listening online or someone here who sold mattresses at one time. Please know that that's not really what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's, there's some people who've gotten involved in ministry, and the whole point is to take advantage of people. Peter understood this. So he now describes in four ways how we can recognize those false teachers within the church. Let's start by looking at verses 10 through 12. 
again in 2 Peter and in chapter 2. <clears throat> now he said, this is especially true. Now let me back up to verse 9 so we can pick up where we left off. He says, the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. That's an encouraging word. Then he goes on to say this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts. Creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. You know why that encourages me? Because Peter actually sounds a little angrier than I get when I think about false teachers. Here's a man who loved people, was giving his life to serve people, had planted churches, was encouraging the people he's writing his epistles to, and news gets back to him about some of these con artists, some of these manipulators, false teachers, those who would seek to take advantage of others. And now he begins to describe them. Having talked already about it, he begins to describe them as men who despise authority. So the first of the four ways to recognize a false teacher is that false teachers despise authority. Now, I'm going to tell you, not everyone who despises authority is a false teacher but false teachers despise authority. One of the things I've seen in ministry is if you're the kind of person that you can't follow, I really don't think you can lead. A friend of mine who was in the Coast Guard told me that they have a class on leadership called followership in the military. Being a good follower is the first step to being a good leader. And if you have someone in a church who who just cannot submit to authority, they really shouldn't be serving at all. Because more than likely, they're in danger of going down that road of being self-seeking, being perhaps a false teacher, or just taking advantage of people. Because if someone won't submit to authority, it kind of shows what they're all about. You know, I've met people in ministry, they can't work with anybody. Nobody's good enough. Everybody's wrong. They're the only people that do it right. God bless you. And, and, and unfortunately, if you try to help them, if you try to guide them, if you try to direct them, they blow you off. They want nothing to do with it. They, they won't follow directions. These men who were false teachers despised authority. They were guilty of corruption as they gave themselves over to their flesh. Look what it says about them. It says that they follow, in verse 10, the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. So what they do, they they give themselves over to fleshly desires. And the promise of coming judgment was especially true for individuals like this. Because they refused to acknowledge any spiritual authority in their lives, they were in danger of being given over to their fleshly desires. Now, if you're in submission... Now, and again, as a pastor of this church, I'm in submission. I have leaders and trustees that I'm accountable to. I'm mutually accountable to other pastors and leaders. We speak into each other's lives. I don't despise that authority. I treasure it. I love it because it keeps me safe. These individuals want no part of that. 
And they're also guilty of pride as they refuse to show respect for, for even beings such as angels. They would talk a lot about spiritual beings and angels, and the way they talked about them, they showed that they had no respect for celestial beings. By the way, celestial beings are just really just a way of saying not terrestrial beings. See, we're human beings. We live on this earth. We're terrestrial. Celestial beings are those angels which can exist in some sort of interdimensional way uh, that surround the throne of God and also uh, are not bound to the laws of physics and to our universe in which we live. But there are celestial beings. There are angels in different orders of angels, some fallen angels, which we talked about recently. But angels are to be respected, if for no other reason, because they're far more powerful than human beings, right? And look what he says. He says, bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to to slander celestial beings. And it says, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. So even the angels don't behave this way in God's presence. Angels are a higher order of creation than mankind. The Psalms bear this out. We're told in Psalm 8 that he created us a little lower than the angels. Not less important, just less powerful. And and we don't have the same abilities or capacities that they have. But they were guilty of pride, these false teachers, because they refused to show respect for God's angels. They would say things they didn't even know what they were talking about when they said them. But even angels know their place before the throne of God. Yet these men acted in such a way that they didn't know their place before God's presence. And that's what Peter points out. Again, one of the ways you can recognize a false teacher, they despise authority, all authority, God's authority, angelic authority, human authority, authority within the church. They show up and they want nothing to do with anyone who's in a position of authority. They undermine authority. They draw followers to themselves. It's horrible. I've seen this over the years. And my pastor in New York, my pastor, Pastor Mike, I used to think he was especially harsh with people like this. I used to think uh, early on when I first became a Christian that he was being too tough on them. But, you know, over the years I learned just how damaging these individuals can be. I mean, my pastor basically threw them out. I mean, he didn't grab them by the scruff of the neck, but he would have if he had to. And I used to think, wow, that was harsh. But now I understand. I really do. You see, they're also guilty of blasphemy, these false teachers, because they taught about things they didn't understand. Look what it says in verse 12. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand, and he describes them as, as animals. That's kind of interesting to me because <clears throat> last year, uh, when uh, our president at the time was describing individuals who could easily and rightfully be described as animals, uh, when he was describing certain MS-13 gang members that are just absolutely cruel and brutal in the way that they treat other human beings. I'm not even going to get into what they do to them. He called them animals, and people were up in arms because, oh, you can't call a human being an animal. You can if they act like one, right? And Paul has no problem, uh, excuse me, Peter has no problem, Peter has no problem saying the truth about these individuals. They lived instinctually, talking about things they didn't understand, guilty of blasphemy. They lived like animals, not like men made in the image of God. And they would suffer the same fate as animals that are hunted down and destroyed. Because look what he says. 
They're brute beasts, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. It's real harsh, but it's true. So the first way we recognize false teachers, they're men or women who despise authority. The second, and this should be pretty obvious, Peter describes them as men who love pleasure. They love pleasure. Now listen, everyone loves pleasure to some degree. I mean, there are experiences that are pleasant, and we we love those things. However, when the pleasure of an experience overrides what's right and allows you to do what's wrong, and it's selfish and at the taking advantage of someone else at the expense of someone else, it, you see that that's where you can recognize the false teacher. They're men who love pleasure. And by saying pleasure, I'm saying sinful things. Look at verses 13 through 16. Notice he says, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. And that's, they've done harm to others. They do harm to others. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, we'll talk about that account, the account of Balaam, and why it's mentioned here. But back to why Peter brings this up. Peter describes these men, these false teachers, as men who love pleasure. And they would be held accountable. And I I like that because, you know, one of the most disappointing things is when someone is in a position of leadership in the church, a pastor, an elder, a leader, and, and you find out their desire for pleasure motivated them to take advantage of someone else, to harm someone else for their own selfish uh, pleasure. When you hear about these things, I mean, how much has happened, maybe maybe not as much within the Protestant church as the Catholic church, but how much has happened within religion, and specifically in Christian churches, where individuals have been, as children or young adults, have been taken advantage of by clergy? I mean, listen, I know we say things like, oh, there's a special hell for a person like that. I don't know about that, but I know this, they will be judged by God. And you know, brothers and sisters, I'm okay with that. Yes, it would be great if they repent, but I'm okay with judgment coming down. So is Peter. And he says it. They would be held accountable for the harmful things that they have done to others. Like what he says there, they'll be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the next. Hopefully in this life. They're described as individuals who live what's described as soft and luxurious lives in full view of those around them. This idea of carousing. It's this idea you live in a life soft and a luxurious life, and you're living at large in front of everybody. You know, you guys probably remember, if you're a little bit older like me, uh, but there, there, there were some individuals back in the 80s, and they had so much money, they were taking advantage of uh, the people. And, you know, everyone remembers, was it, Jim and Tammy Baker, and how she had this air-conditioned doghouse? 
I mean, everybody talked about the air-conditioned doghouse as just, just a sign of just how decadent these people were. They often love soft and luxurious lives, and they live them in front of everyone, and they defile the fellowship of believers by their sinful behavior. So they would show up at what they call the love feast, which was like a potluck in a sense. It was a gathering of fellowship. And they would defile the feast because they were there. Because their whole attitude for being there, their whole reason for being there was wrong. As he says it here, he says, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. So even within the church, within the gathering, within the fellowship, they're there and they're, they're really giving themselves over to sin. Their whole purpose for being there is maybe to take advantage of people, to gawk, who knows what, steal from people, take advantage of people. I remember early on in the church, there were some people that were, you know, they, they were selling things or uh, trying to get people involved in multi-level marketing schemes. And their whole purpose for being in church was to try to entrap people and take advantage of them. And again, I remember my pastor being very, very stern and strong with people like this. Taught me early on, you cannot allow false teachers to take root in the body of Christ. Like a shepherd, you have to throw out the wolves. You just have to. They willfully took advantage of those that were weak within the fellowship. And there's nothing more disgusting than that. And it says it there. It says, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. That is, the weak people. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. Strong words, but what it's saying is these are the kind of people that, if you allow it, will make their nests in the church. And no one in the fellowship will be safe if you allow them to take root. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear about something. Our, our, our leaders, are, are, we're pretty shrewd, okay? So we keep our eyes open. So this doesn't typically ever happen here. But every once in a while, like Sal and I will talk about some stuff and we'll find out somebody who was there at the church and they were asking people for money. They were doing it really carefully so that none of the pastors or leaders heard about it or saw it. And, you know, people come into the church, they've got good hearts. They want to help people. Someone's got a song and a dance. And they do it, and before you know it, the person's walking out of here with $100 from this one and that one. And, and so if we even hear or get wind of that, we, told them, we tell them, Flatta, you are not allowed to beg for money in this church. <laughs> I remember probably about a year or two ago, right, Sal? There was someone who was doing that, and, we, and, and I was very nice. And I, and I pulled the person aside. It was a smile on my face and an open heart. We didn't chase the person out, but I did tell them, please, do not ask anyone in this church for money or you can't be here. And I know that I was not her favorite person after that uh, because, you know, I, I got in the way of whatever kind of scam she had going. But, you know, you have to look out for people like this. They willfully took advantage of those that were weak within the fellowship, the unstable. They saw an opportunity for adultery in every woman they met. So, so basically, the, the, the guys are coming in the church and, and really, they're just looking to, to, to sleep with people's wives. I mean, think, I mean you, you, you think it's crazy, but we've, we've read too many articles in Christianity Today or some other newspaper to, not to know that this is happening like an epidemic within the churches today. Bible-believing churches. 
I mean, I, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor, okay? I, I've been involved in Calvary Ministries going back to 1986, okay? And I've been a part of that ministry. I've followed the teachings of Pastor Chuck Smith. Uh, we are a Calvary Chapel. We, we certainly are. But I got to be honest with you, I have been absolutely disheartened and discouraged by some of the testimony of Calvary Chapel pastors over the last five to ten years. Guys that I, I listened to at conferences, people that I really respected and admired in, in some cases, and then you find out that, you know, they were cheating on their wives, they were doing this, they were doing that, and, and I'll tell you what, sometimes my reaction is I just want to change the name of the church, but that's not the answer. The, the answer is to be able to recognize these people for what they are and call it out. Even if it's someone you may like or thought you liked, you have to be able to expose them. Peter was this kind of person. These individuals were driven by their insatiable desire for more of what was forbidden to them. That's why he describes it this way. He says, they're experts in greed. Experts in greed. You see, back in the 80s, we should have recognized these people. But people weren't reading Peter's epistle, apparently, or they weren't really studying the words or understanding what he said because it was obvious, it still is obvious, who these people are and what they're capable of. They're people, they're, they're men, many cases, sometimes women who love pleasure. And then he describes them as men like Balaam. Now, you may know the account of Balaam in the scriptures, and if you do, great. If you don't, I'm going to give you a little recap. Here's what Peter says. He says, They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, this is very peculiar because Balaam was not an Israelite. Yet he was a prophet. He was sort of a diviner. He was sort of a, an occultist. And yet God did speak to him. And it, it begs a lot of questions. You know, you, why? But he did. Now, th- this is in the time before Israel was established as a nation. Uh, this took place while Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. But these false teachers are likened to Balaam because Balaam was obsessed with material wealth. Jude talks about this in verse 11 of his epistle. We'll get to it in a few months. But Balaam was obsessed with material wealth, and that's why he's likening these false teachers to Balaam. Now, Balaam was enticed by a a king called Balak. He was the king of Moab, and he wanted to curse Israel. He wanted God to curse Israel, so he hired Balaam to do that very thing. He offered Balaam a handsome reward, to come to Moab, pronounce a curse. And they believed that if a prophet pronounced a curse, it would come true. They believed if a prophet pronounced a blessing, it would come true. And so Balaam's on his way. At first, he, he, he chooses not to go because the Lord doesn't want him to go. Then he decides to go, and it's a little confusing. But at the end of the day, his heart wasn't right, and he was going for the wrong reasons. He was probably supposed to go there to support Israel and to... And to rebuke Balak, but instead, already in his heart, he was thinking, how can I get that money? How can I get that reward? He was conniving. God confronted him. In fact, the Lord used his donkey to rebuke him and restrain him in his greed. 
And that is, it's kind of a comical story. It's in uh, Numbers chapter 22, verses 1 through 20, but, uh, or actually uh, the entire chapter, 22, all the way through um, verse 41. But what was interesting is Israel was ultimately blessed four times by Balaam instead of being cursed. So after he was rebuked by the Lord, he did go, and he was told, only say the things I want you to say. So he goes there, Balak is offering him all this money, and he begins or, or tries to say something, but all he can do is bless Israel. So four times he blesses Israel. Balak's not real pleased. You know, he's not going to pay this guy to bless Israel. He wants to pay, them, pay him to curse Israel. By the way, this account is frequently mentioned in the scriptures. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy, uh, also in Numbers, uh, Joshua, Nehemiah, Micah. It comes up a lot. He was a real villain of the Old Testament. Balaam was one of the real bad guys of the Old Testament. What we do know is because he did these things and blessed Israel, nothing bad happened to Israel. But somehow he figured out a way to get a reward. You see, Israel later killed Balaam. They found him and they killed him because he gave wicked counsel to Balak. The Lord wouldn't allow him to curse Israel, So he counseled Balak instead. His counsel was effective in tempting the men of Israel to sin against God. What he did was he he told Balak, listen, have all of the Moabite, Moabite women go into the camp and seduce the men, and then you won't have to worry about it. You won't have to worry about cursing Israel. They'll bring judgment on themselves from God. So, okay, he didn't curse, but he counseled. And as a result, the Lord judged Israel for their sinful disobedience. That that comes up in Numbers 25. Now, it's not to say that Balaam was responsible for what Israel did. But like the devil in the Garden of Eden, he counseled Balak to do something that ultimately brought about the fall of God's people and God's judgment against them. So, that's the individual that Peter likens these false teachers to. I think he's being very clear about how he feels toward these false teachers. Okay, so the first two of the four that we're looking at tonight, they were men who despised authority, and they were men who loved pleasure. The third, Peter describes them as men who deceive others, who deceive others. Listen, no one should lie to you or deceive you in the church. There should never be a time where anyone tells you anything but the truth. Now, that doesn't mean you have to answer every question everyone asks you about your life. But people shouldn't be telling you things that aren't true. Now, listen, if someone shares something with you and they believe it to be true, that's one thing. But when someone goes out of their way to tell a lie, to manipulate you, they're deceiving you. And that's what happens here. Look at verses 17 through 19. Very poetically, he describes them in this way. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave 
to whatever has mastered him. Really interesting description. Basically, in verse 17, when he uses this poetic language, these men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. He's using poetic descriptions to, in a sense, say that they promised many things. These men, these false teachers came in, they deceived people, they made promises, but they didn't keep them. It's like writing checks that you couldn't cash. They promised a great many things, but they delivered absolutely nothing. A spring without water. Is it really a spring? A mist isn't really a rain cloud. It doesn't water the land. It's useless to a a farmer. A mist doesn't help. It it looks as if it's a rain, rain cloud, but it's not. It looks as if it's a spring, but it's not. See, they were promised an eternal judgment for their deception. They were saying one thing and doing another. They were promising things they couldn't deliver on. Deception. They made great boasts. False teachers do that. They say things, oh yeah, oh, they give you all these things, oh definitely this, no definitely. Be careful people say definitely. Or absolutely, you know, and they make you all kinds of promises. Look at verse 18. For they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. See, these poor people, they're just coming out of a life of paganism and error, and they're learning about the truth, and then these people come along, these false teachers, and they deceive them. I can't tell you how many times I've seen it in my life. People give their life to Christ, and then they get under one of these false teachers, and bef- before you know it, they're, they're being ripped off, taken advantage of, abused, harmed. You see why it gets me angry, right? You understand why Peter's feeling the way he is and writing the way he's writing. They made great boasts, but they provided absolutely nothing. They appealed to the fallen sinful nature of mankind in order to take advantage of them. They tempted those that had just recently received Christ and were now new to the faith. Wicked people, accursed people, an accursed brood. And they promised a life of freedom, freedom in Christ, right? They promised a life of freedom, but they themselves lived a life of slavery to sin. And we've talked about what those sins are. Adultery, greed, all of these nasty sins. They were enslaved to the desires of their flesh, mastered by their own passions and desires, and they only succeeded in enslaving new believers in their sinful passions and desires. Very dangerous people to be around and to have set free within the church. As it says, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. That's a sinful lifestyle, depraved lifestyle, perverse lifestyle. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. So whatever you give yourself over to, that's your master. Whatever you allow in your life, whether it's substance abuse or alcoholism or lust, it masters you. That, that becomes, really kind of owns you. And these guys were promoting that lifestyle by living it and ensnaring others in it. So we've seen that these false teachers were men who despised authority, who loved pleasure, who deceived others. But finally, the fourth of the things Peter describes them as, they are men who reject God's word. Pure and simple. We talked a little bit about this when we were looking at the truth about God's word in the previous chapter. But they 
are men or women who reject God's word. You show them what God's word says about something, and they reject it. Because it doesn't line up with what they want. So here's what we read in verses 20 through 22. Peter says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the, at the end than they were at the beginning. And he's talking not just about the false teachers, but certainly about those that they had ensnared. Anyone who is dragged off and, and uh, taken into captivity by sin because of these false teachers. But they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning, we're told. And it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Yeah, he just called them... uh, dogs and pigs. He has a lot of harsh things to say about them. These were men and women who rejected God's word. You see, their knowledge of the gospel only served to condemn them in their sins for all eternity. They could have escaped the corruption of the world, but clearly they had not. They were trapped in a life of sin and overcome by their refusal to repent. They had been condemned by ignorance in the past, but now they were condemned by the truth. You see, when people don't know the truth, they're condemned by their ignorance. That that is, they're not right with God, but they're ignorant of what being right with God looks like. But now they know the truth, and they're condemned by the truth, because they know better. There's no excuse for that. You can't claim ignorance. They obviously knew the truth of the gospel, but they chose to reject it and to live a lie. That's what false teachers look like. They were completely unchanged by the truth of the gospel. Now that's sad. Think about that. i got to be honest. The only way that I think a true believer, someone who loves God, can try, even attempt to be comfortable in their sin is to stay away from God's word. Like, don't go to church. Don't be in fellowship. Don't listen to messages online. Don't read your Bible. And then maybe you'll start to be comfortable in your sin. Maybe. Probably not, because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, like we talked about on Sunday, right? You're you're probably not going to be comfortable. But the thing is, these people are hanging around in church. These people sometimes are leaving churches. Uh, These people are hearing the truth all the time. They're quote-unquote in God's word, but they reject the word of God. And they're living a lie, and and they seem to be unchanged by the truth of the gospel. They come to church, but it doesn't affect them at all. This is what we're talking about. This is a dangerous type of person to have around, isn't it? Look what it says again. I like the way it describes this. It said, if they had escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it, and that happens to people at times, of course, all of us, but notice, if they're entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than than they were at the beginning, and that's because they know better. But then he says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and to have known it and then to turn their backs 
on the sacred command that was passed on to them. See, once you know the word of God, once you've been enlightened by the truth, if you choose to walk away from it, you'll never be happy. I've seen it over and over again. You'll never find happiness. If you were happy in your sin the day before you gave your life to Christ, it wouldn't surprise me. Most people are. But once you give your life to Jesus Christ, you will never, ever be happy in your sin again. Not if you truly give your life to Jesus Christ. It just won't happen. You'd have been better off if you just stayed in your sin. But these individuals are not the real deal because they're still happy in their sin. Nothing's really changed. It's all deception. It's all a lie. It's all a facade. And that's why we can call them false teachers, because they're not real. They're completely unchanged by the truth of the gospel. Now, one of the things we know is that a fool will never change his ways or be anything but proud. That's what the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 26, verse 11. A fool will never change his ways or be anything but proud. And he goes on to share certain Proverbs, but, you know, they, as individuals, had purged their old way of living just to return to that which they had purged. What would be the point? It's like you come to Christ, you give up all this sin, and then you just return to it. And that's what he's describing. Well, we're not unfamiliar with what Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, talks about with the sower and the seed. How is it and why is it that of the four different types of seed, only one was the good soil? Only one was landed on good soil. There are lots of people that hear the word and they think, oh, great, and it doesn't really change them. What happened? Well, what happened, Pastor Tim? Were they saved? Apparently not. Apparently not. They receive the word with gladness, but then when persecution comes or when the cares of this life come, they abandon it. And that's a great description of these individuals. Only they went even further. They went out and they started to take advantage of others. They had been washed by the truth, but they were more comfortable living in the mud. Now listen, the description here is fairly graphic. A dog returns to its vomit. Nobody wants to think about that. But he already barfed it up. Why would he go back and eat it? That's the description that's given to those who leave a life of sin, but then go back to it. You won't forget that one. That really makes a mark. Or this one, a sow that is washed, goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Here, here you take the pig out of the mud, clean it all up, and sometimes people keep animals like this, but give them an opportunity, and that pig's going right into the mud. And that describes these false teachers. Now, in the scriptures, there are sometimes uh, animals that people are likened to, and they, and they sort of have a, a meaning. This is true with plants, this is true with seeds, but it's also true with animals. Dogs, for example. Dogs, in the scripture, are those that are unchanged by the truth. And, and listen, we're not talking, there's nothing if you like dogs, if you're a dog lover, you own a dog, we're not talking about dogs, we're talking about people, and they call them dogs because they're unchanged by the truth comes up in various scriptures. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it here. And pigs, pigs are those that are unclean by their lifestyle. And we still use that description today. Someone's a pig. Someone lives like a pig. <laughs> and that's used here. But you know, the other animal that's oftentimes used in the scriptures is a sheep. Sheep represent those that have chosen to follow the shepherd. 
So which one of these are you? I think I can safely say that if you're here tonight and you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, and yes, you struggle with sin, but you can't be described as one of these individuals. You're a sheep. You belong to the shepherd. But just be aware that there are wolves. And wolves are also a, another animal that, in that case, it's someone that preys on the sheep. Or there are dogs that are unchanged by the truth. They're not really any different than the day they walked in the church. In fact, they're worse because they haven't changed in light of the truth. And then there's the pigs. They just love to live in the mud. Brothers and sisters, make sure that we are of the flock of God, sheep that follow the shepherd with all of our hearts. Beware of the false teachers. Learn to recognize them. We have no excuse. They're men who despise authority. They're men who love pleasure. They're men who deceive others. And they're men who reject God's word. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us insight through Peter, for giving us understanding that we might protect the flock of God and protect our own hearts, protect our church, that we would very quickly recognize those that could be a danger to the body of Christ. But also, Lord, if we start to see tendencies in our own lives, maybe that's all they are. Maybe they're just temptations and tendencies. But if we start to see these things in our own hearts, Lord, help us to remember this study that we might not give our hearts over to things that are said of people that aren't even believers, but are rather fake or false teachers. Lord, give us strength and help us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.